Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, David Hook continues our series of messages on the Gospel according to Mark. Today, looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 20 through 33. And now, here's David. Thank you, uh, team, there for the wonderful songs and the leading us in the... Uh, communion service, uh, very meaningful as always to share in the body and blood of our Lord. Let's uh, take a moment to just give uh, uh, an opportunity for our hearts to come to the Lord. Father, we thank you for the morning, for this service together. Thank you for the message that you've given to us. Thank you for the scriptures that we have before us. We pray that as we Look into them that they may remind us of your great love for us, of your great faithfulness, and of our um, desire to love you and love one another. And may you help us in all of these things, and may your spirit lead and direct us as we, as we spend this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So this, this morning we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. And I I would like to begin our time by reading the first six verses of the passage that is before us today. So this is in Mark chapter 11, starting at uh, verse 20. In the morning, the roots, Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. When I read these verses, I I find myself scratching my head a little bit. So there's a couple of, well, there's a bunch of questions that come to mind. Why did Jesus kill a fig tree? And can we really move a mountain? And, And if that's possible, why hasn't anyone ever done it? Can we really expect to get anything we pray for? How do I know if I'm really believing enough? Does my forgiveness from God depend on my forgiving others? So these are just a few of the puzzles that come to my mind. And maybe you've had any and similar questions. Anybody had any questions like that about this passage before? You? Nobody. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, if you don't have any questions, I'll go sit down now. and, uh, and then you, Or if you've got it all answered, you could come up here and uh, take my place. Anyway, so... So what on first reading seems to be pretty clear and easily understood will actually require on our part some significant amount of meditation and study, maybe some collective thinking about what it all means would also be of value. The Bible is meditation literature. Reading it is just the beginning Often understanding takes months and even years of meditation. 
It's also a community project in which we help one another uncover the wisdom to be found. Even after a lifetime of meditation, there will be still many things that remain to be discovered. So I'm not here as an expert to give you all the right answers. Rather, I want to present some ideas and connections that have come to my mind as I have meditated on this passage. You are sure to have some of your own ideas, but my goal is to help us to think about this passage in the larger context of Mark's Gospel and indeed all the other scriptures, although we don't have time to read all the other scriptures today. I'm sorry. <laughs> Obviously, this is going to take a lifetime and beyond. But let's begin with the dying fig tree. Of course, we're starting in the middle of the story here at verse 20, and we have to go back at least to verse 12 to the verses that we covered last week, where the disciples hear Jesus pronouncing the doom on this unfruitful tree. That took place on the second day of this extremely important week that began with Jesus triumphantly entering Jerusalem and ends with his crucifixion. Mark has devoted a third of his gospel to covering the events of that week. It's obviously an extremely significant week for the kingdom of God. Our passage begins on the third day of that week. Now, it's no accident that Mark... Uh, divided the story of the fig tree into two parts, separated by the account of Jesus cleansing the temple. I think that Mark intends for his readers to see the connection between the corruption of the temple and the fruitless fig tree. The tree is an object lesson for us to ponder. We may be surprised that Jesus would condemn a tree, but that is not inconsistent with the character of God who pronounces a number of curses in Scripture. Just, just look at Genesis 3, where he curses the ground, the ground that was to provide abundance of food for humanity, now bears thorns and thistles, and requires toil and labor to make it bring forth fruit. I also see a link from Mark's Gospel to the warnings of, given to Israel by Moses in Deuteronomy now, there are many chapters in Deuteronomy devoted to outlining the blessings and the curses that could come to Israel depending on the choices that they make. But I think it would be helpful to read a summary of that in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. And Moses is speaking to the people of Israel here just before he dies and passes on his leadership to Joshua. But here he is in Deuteronomy 30:15. Now listen. Today I'm giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in his life. And the Lord your God will bless you and the land you are about to enter and occupy. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, and if you are drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live a long, good life in the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. Today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. 
You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying Him, and committing yourself firmly to Him. So they were given this choice between the blessing of God or the removal of that blessing, which is, by definition, what a curse would be. Well, let's get a little more specific to the uh, fig tree, and we'll look at another prophetic message um, in Jeremiah chapter 8, 13. So Jeremiah is relaying God's message to the unfaithful people of Judah. He says, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree. And their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. We could turn to a number of other prophetic statements that gives similar warnings, but I think from these few, we can make the connection between the dying fig tree and the coming judgment on the nation and leaders that have chosen to follow the gods of money and power. Now let's turn our attention to mountain moving. How are Jesus' disciples to connect the fig tree with mountain moving? Is he just saying that his disciples should be able to do similar miraculous actions like killing fig trees or levitating mountains? Or is there a connection that is suggested by the context? I think we should take note of a few details that we tend to skip over. And Jesus begins this instruction with the words, have faith in God. Now I think we might read over that too quickly and miss the opportunity to pause and meditate on that instruction. There is a tendency, I think, to think of these words just as an introduction to the ideas that are following, that it'll take, it takes faith to see miraculous answers to prayer. Therefore, you know, have lots of faith in God. The idea being that we really, really have to believe that God will do what we request. If we don't have enough faith, our prayers will not be effective. But is there another way of looking at this instruction? Try reading the line with some synonyms for faith, like trust God, or put your confidence in God, or depend on God, or how about this one, count on God. It may not be a matter of the greatness of our faith, but the matter is the faithfulness of God. Do we trust what he has told us? Do we trust his character? God, through his prophets, had revealed that he would judge his people, allowing the destruction of the unfaithful, but rescuing those who trust him. He has also promised that nations would come to worship in Jerusalem. Now, if these revelations are trustworthy, would it not make sense to pray for their fulfillment? Would it not be appropriate to pray for the removal of the corrupt system of worship on the Temple Mount and pray for God's kingdom to come? Another detail that could be important is Jesus' is, is use of the definite article here. He said this mountain, not a mountain. Now, he was heading toward the temple, so he would have been looking toward Mount Zion. Here we are standing on the Mount of Olives looking at the Temple Mount today. 
Perhaps he was speaking metaphorically of the destruction and judgment coming on that mountain. Let's look at some words from the prophet Micah and learn something of God's revealed plan for this mountain. Starting in Micah chapter 3, and we'll read to chapter 4, verse 2. Listen to me, you leaders of Israel. You hate justice and twist all that is right. You are building Jerusalem on a foundation of murder and corruption. You rulers make decisions based on bribes. You priests teach God's laws only for a price. You prophets won't prophesy unless you... You know, Jesus could have used this passage when he was clearing the temple as much as the passage that he did, I think. You know, all of these fit what he was saying. So you say the Lord is with us. So no harm can come to us, you say, for the Lord is here among us. Because of you, Mount Zion will be plowed like an open field. Jerusalem will be reduced to ruins. A thicket will grow on the heights where the temple now stands. And Jesus could easily have quoted from these verses when he was um, cleansing the temple. And he well may have them in mind when he would speak later the same day about the coming destruction of the temple. And we'll get to those words in chapter 13. We'll go on to uh, some more verses in Micah in chapter 4. But yeah, so Micah doesn't end there because he foresees a renewed mountain of replacing the one thrown down. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Micah is speaking of the coming kingdom of God. Perhaps what Jesus was teaching was the efficacy of prayer for the removal of the corrupt regime and the inauguration of his new kingdom. Just a quick look at the word doubt that Jesus refers to. Often we get the idea that we must pray without any doubt about the outcome of our prayers or they will go unanswered because we lack enough faith. Does anyone have a good faith or doubt meter? Plug it in and say, no, too much, not enough, too much doubt, not enough belief. No, we don't have anything like that. Uh, can, can it be measured? And how much doubt will spoil the effect? How do I know if I have enough faith? Maybe if my prayers are not answered, does that mean my faith is too small or my doubt is too great? In Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 17, verse 20, we read that faith like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of seeds, can move a mountain. Uh, that would seem to leave a lot of room for doubt. If you have only a small little bit of faith, uh, there must be a lot of room for something else. Or maybe just a little bit of faith is moving, going to move a mountain. Well, nobody's gone out and moved any mountains that I've seen yet. So what does this mean? But the mustard seed maybe represents the beginnings of a trusting relationship that over time will grow and develop, thus referring to the potential for growth rather than a measure of the size. The word doubt that's used in scriptures means to waver between two options. 
choice A, choice B. I don't know which one. You know, I'm sort of doubting. That's what the doubt was. Not that I don't know if I have enough faith, but it's wavering between the options. In the context of, context of our passage, perhaps Jesus is suggesting that in order to see God bring about his purposes in us, we should not waver between the corrupt old life and the new life that he desires for us. We are not likely to see the transformation in our lives that is possible if we are asking for change, but we want to keep things the way they are. <laughs> and so that's the, the, the options that we waver between sometimes. And then there's verse 24. And that, to remind you, said, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, it's easy to see how some people have taken this verse to mean that if they name it and they they claim it, they'll get it. After all, the Bible says it, so we should believe it and that we should settle it. And that's a bold position to take. But in reality, we haven't seen it always work, have we? There's some things we pray for and they don't happen. Or they don't happen what we think they should happen. Or we're not sure whether maybe we had some doubt or maybe we didn't believe hard enough. But that's maybe not what's going on with that verse. But let's see an example. And this is a really sad example. In December 2019, this two-year-old child who, who lived in California died suddenly. The parents belonged to a group that strongly believed that God would perform miracles in response to prayer. And the church and many others from around the world were, were asked to pray for this child's resurrection. And you may remember this story. It was in the news. After six days of fervent prayer, they came to accept the child was not coming back. Now, not only was their grief intense, they now had to come to terms with why didn't the prayer... Was there too much doubt? Was God unable to do the miracle? Was the Bible wrong? Or did they misunderstand it? Did God have a good reason for not doing what the Bible says? Or does God care? Or does he even exist? All of these questions arise when we see this sort of problems when we, we think we've got the answer and it doesn't work the way we see it. I'm reading a book right now, slowly going through it, and it's called How Not to Read the Bible. Now, the author, Dan Kimball, lists four facts in this book about how not to read the Bible. But one of them is, never read a Bible verse. <laughs> That's, of course, tongue-in-cheek. But what he means is you never just read one verse by itself. You have to read the context of that verse. You have to read the paragraph that it's in, or better yet, the book that it's in, or better yet, compare it to the whole Bible, right? So, reading an isolated verse is a recipe for distortion. This is important for any verse, but certainly important for this verse. What is the context we've just been thinking of? Could this verse apply to the idea of replacing that corrupt government regime with the new kingdom? A prayer for the kingdom to come? Might this refer to the prayers for the needs of the kingdom, the daily bread that sustains the followers of Jesus. For example, how Paul prayed for the believers in Ephesus. 
in chapter 3 of Ephesians, we read Paul saying, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the Creator of everything in heaven and on earth. And I pray that from His glorious unlimited resources, He will empower you with inner strength through the Spirit. And he goes on to pray that they would understand and experience the depth of God's love for them. His prayer is a request that these followers of Jesus will have all that they need to grow, to grow the kingdom, to build the kingdom. His prayer was not that they would have this or that material thing or see, you know, whatever, but it was focused on their personal growth, the growth of the church, the growth of the kingdom of God. As I was studying and meditating on this passage, my thoughts were drawn to the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. You've probably already picked up on my intentional allusions to that prayer. And of course, the connection was a little more obvious because we read it earlier on together. The next verse was the key that opened that door of that connection for me. So Mark concludes this little teaching account of Jesus by a thought that is also found in the Lord's Prayer. And to me, this raises the possibility that what Jesus is teaching in this passage is kind of a practical application of the pattern of prayer that he taught his followers. To highlight this connection between Mark and Matthew, I've put both passages together for comparison. And here they are in in the New King James Version. Matthew 6, we read earlier, 12 and verse 14 and 15, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now look at Mark 11 there. And what, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now, if you're following along in uh, uh, some translations, you won't find verse 26 in your Bible. It'll have go from 25 to 27. And that's because the older manuscripts, that verse doesn't appear in those. In the newer or younger manuscripts, like the ones that the King James translators use, it does have it in there. And so what may have happened was that somebody was reading along and they said, boy, this sounds like Matthew. I'm going to write in Matthew... Uh, Chapter 6, verse 15, beside that spot in my Bible here. And he does that. And then and then the next person who copies it says, oh, that's supposed to go in there. And he puts it in, maybe. Who knows? But it tells me something that I may not be the first person to connect Mark 11 and <laughs> Matthew 6. Somebody else has done that. So we're very familiar with the Lord's Prayer. But did you ever wonder at the order of forgiveness taught in both of these passages? We are to forgive others in order to be forgiven by God. Doesn't that seem backwards? Doesn't our forgiveness, does our forgiveness depend on our actions? Wouldn't it make more sense to pray, help us to forgive our debtors as you have forgiven us? But the order Jesus teaches is important. Now, forgiveness is essential in the maintenance of relationships. Think what life would be like at home if spouses never forgave each other. Life would quickly become unbearable and all intimacy would end. Unforgiveness 
is pure poison for relationships. It will poison our relationships with one another. And if that happens, our intimacy with God will be threatened and and possibly lost. So Jesus illustrates this in the parable that is in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 18. And he talks about the story of a king who wanted to settle the accounts uh, of those who had borrowed money from him. And one servant of the king owed the king millions of dollars. And he couldn't pay back his debt. So the king ordered that he and his whole family would be sold into slavery in order to recoup some of that debt. The man fell to his knees and begged the king for mercy and more time to pray, <coughs> pay the debt. The king was moved by this plea and forgave the man's debt. Millions of dollars. Oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> but the man who had received this uh, forgiveness went to someone who owed him a few thousand dollars and he demanded payment right away. Give me my money. And the fellow immediately begged for mercy with exactly the same words that the other man had spoken to the king. But instead of forgiveness, this man had his fellow servant thrown into debtor's prison until he paid up. So when the king learned of this behavior, he brought the man back to his court and told him, you evil man, and that you should have forgiven your fellow servant as the king forgave you. The king then had this evil man thrown into jail with the loss of the king's favor that he enjoyed. So Jesus is practically telling us what he's meaning in the Lord's Prayer and in in Mark's Gospel here. Jesus is telling us that this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. If God's people forgive one another, they will enjoy the blessings of the king's favor. But if they refuse to forgive, that blessing of the king's favor is lost and they don't enjoy it. And this kingdom will suffer. Forgiveness is a demonstration of love. God demonstrates his love towards us and he desires that we demonstrate our love toward one another. This isn't an option if we would see God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth. Look at what Paul told the followers of Jesus in Corinth. Quite appropriate to Mark's gospel here. Chapter 13, verse 2. If I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. Think of that. You could go and move a mountain, but you don't love, so what's it all pointless? It's all pointless. Without love, everything becomes pointless and futile, even moving mountains. In the kingdom, we must love God and love our neighbors for His will to be done on earth. Well, I've used most of my time to focus on uh, the teaching of Jesus, but in the few minutes remaining, let's consider the next few verses of Mark's essay. In the day, it is the day after Jesus had cleared the temple courtyard and he's back in the same spot. He's in the temple. The Jewish leaders of the nation confront him and demand to know who gave him the authority to do and say what he did. Maybe they were wondering, what rabbinical tradition are you following? Or maybe they wondered, does he have some special authority from Rome and he's trying to undercut us here? Or, or, Earlier, they had accused him of having the authority of Satan. Did they still think that was a possibility? Or did they think he was just some guy out there acting on his own? And so Jesus commits to answering their demand if first they answer his question. I wonder why the, the leaders didn't go to the line like, well, we asked you first. <laughs> 
No, no, they didn't. They said, okay. So Jesus' question is masterful. He asked them, if John's ba- if John the Baptist spoke with heavenly authority or merely with human authority. So he gave them this binary choice. God or human. God or human. And they scratched their heads for a little while and they said, well, if we say God, of course, they'll say, why didn't you believe him then? And if we say human, all these people around us are going to jump on us because they really liked John and they thought he was a prophet. But in posing the question this way, Jesus really answered their question without having to give the answer. It was obvious that they had the two choices. Are you, is your authority from God or is your authority from humans? Uh, pick one. And of course, they're going to pick humans because they don't want to follow him. They want, they're going to reject him. But it's obvious that his authority comes from the same one who, who gave his message to the prophets of old. The leaders had rejected this authority and therefore they were rejecting the kingdom of God. Mark, at this point, is clearly portraying Jesus as the one who speaks with divine authority and in truth is God with us. To have faith in God is to trust Jesus. I'd like just to take a minute to introduce our closing song, which we're going to sing in just a second. Steve suggested some songs and he said, how about it as well for a closing song? And I looked at the words and I said, yeah, that would fit. Uh, but he had been thinking about the tr- more traditional version of it as well, and I was looking at the contemporary version. So we're going to sing the contemporary version. But but it's interesting to note that the the song "It Is Well" and this one we're going to sing comes from Bethel music, which is the church that I mentioned that was praying for the resurrection of the child. Perhaps their actions were based on some misunderstanding of scripture on that occasion, or whatever and but who which of us cannot sympathize with them for their desire to have their child back again the grief that they suffered collectively as in their case and in fact for all of us there's always more to learn from the scriptures and more about god and his character that we could come to understand and i think this closing song expresses some importance of the theme that we've been considering this morning that is to have faith in God, to trust Him, to count on Him, to depend on Him, and to follow Him, and to love Him, and to love one another, and to pray for the coming of the kingdom as He instructed us, for the well-being of all of us, and for the needs that we have in our spiritual lives, and for our forgiveness of one another. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this time and for your message this morning. We pray that as it uh, speaks to us that you would consider, help us to consider what we need to do to, uh, to um, be fully participating in your kingdom here and now as we live our lives in this place and in this week ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web 
at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.